is uh, Father's Day from Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Hear now God's word. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of the wrath of on the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away: anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father, Through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, for fathers, um, knowing that we all have fathers. We thank you for having them guide us and direct us. We pray for our children that they would honor their fathers and mothers so their life would be long in the land. We pray for our church and for your church that it would be united. We pray for our country that our leaders would understand the things that make for peace, that they would not forget the things that lead to bondage. In Jesus' name. So today's topic ought to be very familiar to you. Most of you have hearts. They operate in the background, and you probably don't pay too much attention to them unless there's a problem. And then once what was seemingly mundane becomes the center of attention, I was going to show an image of the heart, but then I remembered that some of you are a little queasy, and I didn't want to have to stop the exhortation to go and administer first aid. So I'll have you remember back to your school books where you have those images with four chambers and the heart that beats and everything else. They're really very well-designed, sophisticated pumps, and if you take good care of these pumps, they can last for 100 years. Now, can you imagine if you had a pump at home that was operating regularly, regularly, put a little stress on it, 
overloaded a little bit, and it would, it would last for 100 years. It'd be kind of an amazing thing. So we could go into a big tangent on ev evidential apologetics of cardiology, but we're presuppositionalists, so we're going to skip that and move on. What's really more exciting about the heart is the neurocognitive anatomy of the heart. And we don't need to go very far into the Bible to hear about the heart. In Genesis 6, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now let that think, sink in a little bit. The wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was not only evil, but evil continually. Now, I'm only a doctor, but I think that's a little different than I'm okay, you're okay. It seems as though God's trying to say that there is no non-righteous and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But returning to Genesis 6, we learn that God is not just speaking of the pump in our chest. He uses the word heart. He speaks of thoughts and intents of the heart. And this isn't just an isolated example. We read in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 9, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? And then later in Matthew 15, we hear, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness, blasphemies. That's in Matthew 15. And just in case you think you can get anything, get away with anything, you can read all the way into Hebrews chapter 4 where it says that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So since we're in a classroom setting, the first homework assignment is going to be to do a word study on heart and intents and thoughts and desires. And you'll see that I'm not making this up. The Bible uses the term heart, not literally, but figuratively. So big idea number one is that the concept of the heart in the Bible represents those fundamental set of beliefs that control our beliefs and subsequently our intentions our actions, and our emotions. Secular scientists have a term called control beliefs, and they use this to describe those same ideas that are included in the biblical notion of heart. They're something like presuppositions, which brings us to big idea number two, is that the original factory equipment that we get on all models after the fall has foundational defects that affect every other part of the system. And likewise, just as if you heart, have heart disease, it's going to eventually affect your legs, it's going to affect your kidneys, it's going to affect your brain. Uh, the wrong set of foundational beliefs affect everything. This is something akin to the, the idea of total depravity. So what's the nature of our heart problems? Many secular scientists are materialists and they believe that we're just a bunch of chemicals in a complicated neurochemical system. 
As Christians, we believe that there's more to reality than just the material. The Bible speaks of spiritual, immaterial entities, and it speaks of minds, spirits, and souls. And although there's some debate as to the the distinctiveness of each of these things, we know that they all are personal in nature, and they have emotional properties. A few weeks ago, Pastor Paul took us down the road of trying to determine what it is that identifies us as individuals. You remember he talked about, are we the same person if we cut our hair, or God forbid that we lose an extremity? Let me just suggest that apart from our physical bodies, we're spiritual beings with immaterial minds and souls, and that our control beliefs are immaterial constructs that define who we are as individuals. In summary, our heart problems are are spiritual in nature. They are intimately related to the control beliefs that the control beliefs that identify us as distinct personalities. Now, curiously, secular scientists have identified the anatomical part of the brain that comes into action when these issues are at play. It's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That will be on the text. Um, it's, they actually, ref- this is curious, they refer to it as the canonically cognitive region of the brain that protects our working memories from emotional distractions. So there's a part of the brain that gets activated, and it acts somewhat as like a control center or a cannon or a standard to help us manage our emotions. Now, we're all familiar with the word canon. Uh, It's what describes the standard for which books are included in the Bible and not. And in the same manner, our control beliefs uh, serve as a standard for what things we're going to weigh and pay attention to. So from a from a physical, from a cultural perspective, we can see that there's a battle that's going to be waged between the flesh and with the spirit. This battle is ongoing and it even occurs in our culture, in our churches, and in our minds as individuals. So let's take a little look at the battlefield that's playing out in our culture. Currently, secular thought is dominated by emotionalism. Curiously, they want you to follow your hearts. And I don't think they're talking about the pump in your chest. What they're really saying is that you should be led by your feelings. And that's promoted by having excess information. It's promoted by having too many things to pay attention to. And eventually, all you get are a bunch of emotionally charged sound bites. And any attempt of meaningful discussion with people whose brains have been conditioned by these emotionally charged sound bites leads to an angry response, personal censorship, and uh, cognitive censorship. And if you think about it, that makes sense if you're If your control beliefs are weak, who would want anybody to challenge them so it's better to silence any oppositional thinking? One of the weapons of the secular degeneration, the battle of is a battle of intimacy. 
First, everything becomes sexualized. Why? Like alcohol and drugs, intimacy has powerful modulating effects on our control beliefs. We can look at the story of Balaam and Balak. You know, after, after he tried to curse Israelites and couldn't, he came up with ideas. Well, the way you can degenerate those Israelites is just to pray those Midianite women in front of them, and that's what will bring them down. We could say the same thing about Samson, David, Solomon, but I think he got the idea. So how does this all work? Scientists have identified a chemical called oxytocin. It is released by your pituitary, and it comes into play during childbirth, during nursing. It also comes to play during intimacy. Now, oxytocin is a pretty powerful chemical. Scientists have done studies where they get a group of subjects, and half of them get placebo, and half of them get a little spray in the nose of oxytocin. And then they present them with this ridiculous financial deal. You know, follow Dr. Eddie's stock plan. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Doctors are notorious for being bad investors. Uh, And sure enough, it's the people who take the, who get the oxytocin spray that take the bait. The people who don't say, you know, this is a ridiculous plan. I'm not going to do it. Um, So, You probably remember reading the story of Samson and Delion wondering in the middle, like, how could this guy, you know, do this, fall into the same trap again? You know, doesn't he have any sense? Well, if you think about how oxytocin works, I mean, he fell for the same bad sales option actually several times. But oxytocin isn't the only chemical in this chemical warfare Intimacy also causes a relief of endorphins, which are they're like a morphine-like substance that's somewhat addicting. And it also creates some euphoria. It also releases neuroexcitatory neurotransmitters, and or they'd be excitatory neurotransmitters that include uh, uh, epinephrine, adrenaline or noradrenaline, and dopamine. And marketing specialists get this. That's why if they want to sell you some garbage, they'll put some sexual innuendo or some sexual image. And we know that sexy transmission fluid sells better than just plain old transmission fluid. (laughs) But it doesn't stop there. Images with sexual connotations, just the image itself can cause a release of these chemicals. And that might explain why people get addicted to things like pornography and helps us understand that even if you look at a woman with lust or with lustful intentions, you've already drifted into the riptide. And if your eye causes you to sin, when you begin to understand the devastating consequences of sin, you're better off taking serious preventive measures to keep yourself from drowning in the sea of bad habits. It's my little kind of adaptation to Matthew. Uh, um, Habits and addictions have another dimension, and that's called neuroplasticity. We were actually talking about it on the way in. Yes, practice of certain behaviors strengthens certain neural, neural circuits and at the expense of other neural circuits. Uh, we were talking about it in context of vision, that when you're young, you're, you actually have a certain time when 
by which you develop the neural circuits for sight. And if you have an eye that drifts off, you tend to develop the strong eye, whereas the weak eye is ignored. And eventually it's very difficult to really process the information that comes through the weak eye. So yes, neuroplasticity helps us understand while the practice of sin makes you a better sinner. I know that's kind of an oxymoron, but I wasn't sure whether to say a worse sinner or better sinner. But anyways, you can see that if you suppress the truth in unrighteousness, worship the wrong things, practice the wrong things, then God will turn us over to a debased mind. In technical terms, a weak canonical neuroemotional regulatory system will become completely dysfunctional. And if you're hearing the echo of, of Romans 1, you can remember that the very next part is that people in this circumstance will surround themselves with, with people like people, and you'll have a culture of people who encourage perversity and de- depravity. Last week, Pastor Paul was... As I pay attention to his lectures. Uh, last week, Pastor Paul was wondering why some people resist degenerative groupthink. He gave the example of this guy who didn't do the salute and they ended up killing him after the fact. Well, recently, we understand that poorly, control, poorly formed control beliefs lead to a vulnerable form of deception. And some people call this mass formation psychosis or mass hypnotism. Uh, some people argue whether it's true. But it kind of explains why people drive around in their cars by themselves with masks, cursing those people who haven't taken the vaccine that isn't protecting them. You know, in the meanwhile, they also, you know, it doesn't stop there. They want to put these people in concentration camps. You know, it's like they want to take their neighbor down the street or their family member who doesn't want to take a vaccine that doesn't work very well in a concentration camp. The risk factors for this form of strong delusion are related to poorly formed control beliefs. They include social isolation, lack of a sense of purpose, free-floating anxiety, which leads to aggression, particularly when it's being constantly fed at you with the media narrative. Eventually, people like this will look for a savior, They'll have a, somebody that they would follow with this cultish-like fervor, and they develop a, a brand of new, self-righteous, irritable, virtue-singling followers. And then I was listening to a panel of doctors that was talking about this. There are scientists and doctors, and one of the panelists, who was a secular guy, kind of looked around the group and said, it's kind of curious, you guys are all Christians, and for some reason, you haven't fallen for this false narrative. Um, so that shouldn't be a surprise. You know, because instead of being isolated, the people in the body of Christ are being bound together. Instead of having a sense of purpose, purposelessness, you know, we have a mission. You know, we're to glorify God. We're to be seeking the kingdom of God. And we're to be doing His will. And God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and curiously, self-control. And we also have the genuine Savior. So although the church and its members have some kind of a resistance to these false teachings, 
they're still trying to make their way into the church in general. It comes in different forms, but they're usually sound bites like doctrine is divisive, being led by the Spirit, having a relationship with Christ. And the other night at dinner, somebody was trying to tell me God has loved to sell me a heresy. As with most well-crafted deception, there's some part truth to it. You know, we do believe that God is using doctrine to divide a people to himself. We do believe that we are to be led by the Spirit and that we're to have a relationship with the Word of God. The problem is when, is when emotionalism gets smuggled in as authoritative revelation from God. So if I have this feeling and I'm spiritual, well, that feeling must be from God. And that is what's going to guide me instead of the Word of God. So let's take a look, closer look at the different responses within the body of Christ. At the center of our passage from Colossians, it talks about a sharp distinction between the old self and the new self. We are to put off the old self along with the whole litany of sins that comes along with that. And we're to be renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And so you can see part of this new creation business is a a knowledge transaction. And we see that one of the immediate consequences of this new creation is a unity that occurs where there is no longer Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, and so forth. You get the idea. And in verse 12 to 14, we read about the attributes of the new self, holy, compassionate, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, forgiving, and above all these things, we are to put on love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. So again, the idea here is this binding together, this unity that occurs as a result of the knowledge transaction that comes as a process of becoming a a new creation. In Ezekiel 36, we learn about the heart transplant, that God will be sprinkling his people with clean water, giving his people a new heart. He'll be removing the heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. In a parallel manner, he will be putting his spirit in us, causing us to keep his statutes. That is, we're going to be washed by the water of the word. We will be given a new set of personally compelling control beliefs so that we will supernaturally be aided by the spirit to keep God's commands. In a parallel structure, utilizing both heart and spirit occurs throughout the Bible. The two tend to go together. We even heard in our call to worship, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with me. So you can do a word study on heart and spirit and see that there's about 25 times where the two go together in somewhat of a parallel fashion. So uh, you all know that God is in charge of our justification, that we don't really have much to do with that. But the Bible compels us to take specific actions once we've been justified. And this is the part of personal sanctification. It's the building up of the body and promoting of the kingdom of God. It begins with individuals and spreads through churches and through our culture. 
So what's our role in this process of transformation from the old self to the new self? From our passage in Colossians 3, on either side of this transformation, it's kind of sandwiched in between um, uh, a couple of ideas. First, it says that we are to seek the things above, setting our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are the earth. Matthew tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. And in Romans 8, Paul instructs us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And then later, we understand that it's by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. In Hebrews 11, we're told that without faith, it is impossible to please God and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And in 2 Corinthians 3, we read that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away and that the Lord is the Spirit and that we're being transformed into the image of the Lord by beholding the Lord. And then later in 2 Corinthians 5, we're told to walk by faith, not by fight, not by sight. And that faith, of course, comes by hearing the word of God from Romans 10, 17. At the end of our passage in Colossians 3.15, we see another parallel structure. It goes, we are, we, are let, we are to let the peace of God rule in our hearts as a means of unification, and we're to let the word of Christ dwell, with, dwell in us richly in all wisdom. And then in Ephesians, there's even a parallel passage that goes along with this. It's, the wording's almost exactly the same. In Ephesians 5, 5.18, it says we're to be filled by the Spirit. So does anybody know how we learn about the things that are above? I was looking up at the ceiling, and I, I really didn't get too much. Maybe he means something else. Anything about the things of the Spirit, the Word of Christ? So if you're saying Scripture, if you're going to answer Scripture on the test, you'll get the right answer. The, the Scriptures speak of Christ and the author of the scriptures were led by the Holy Spirit. In John 6.13, this is kind of like one of my Bible studies. We do a lot of Bible verses. Uh, in John 6.33, we read, It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. And then later, in chapter 14, we learn that the Spirit will dwell in us. And then later, in chapter 21, we read how Christ will manifest himself to us and to those who love God and keep his commandments. How, do we, how will he manifest? Actually, it's right there. The question's there. In John 14, 23, we read, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Here we have another group of parallel structures and ideas that help us understand how this heart transplant takes place. Specifically, the Spirit of God dwells in us when the Word of God, His commands, and His love dwell in us. That brings me to big idea number three. There's only four of them, so you don't have to worry. Uh, <clears throat> to avoid being conformed by the world, you need to be transformed by the Spirit through His Word. 
So we need to be diligent students that rightly divide the word of truth. We need to be sanctified by the truth, knowing that his word is truth. We need to set our eyes, our sights on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This brings me to our, my final point. And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's from Colossians 3.17. So we're not just hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. Paul begins his letter to the Colossians by praying that they be filled with knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, thereby walking in a worthy manner, increasing in the knowledge of God. So big idea number four is that we grasp a better understanding of God's word by doing it as individuals and the body, and as a body. And so this isn't just an academic uh, adventure. This is, a, this is something that we put into practice. We need to do this as individuals and as a body, remembering that we are to be of one mind. This is kind of like a vaccine against heart disease and deception. It's like exercise and diet to keep our heart healthy, a steady diet of God's word and exercise of and the exercise of application will keep our hearts from failing in the time of need. We need to be bound together as a body avoiding intellectual and social isolation, understanding that our purpose in life is to glorify God. We need to understand that if God did not spare his only son but gave him up for us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We need to be persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this Father's Day. Thank you for everybody coming out. Thank you for all your blessings. Um, Just pray that our church and all the churches in our neighborhood would continually to dive into your word, that they would hear it, and that they would actually do it, and that you would be glorified through this, that you would change our culture and our nation and our world. In Jesus' name.